This is a conversation with Mansoor. He's a professional wrestler, popularly known for his time in the WWE, where he was notable for being the first WWE superstar from Saudi Arabia. This conversation was recorded in the middle of a storm in New York, as you can hear. So I really apologize for all the disturbances that you might hear in the audio. In this conversation, we discuss his journey getting into WWE right from his debut. We talk about his love for wrestling and how that changed over time. We discuss the evolution of wrestling styles in Saudi Arabia. And we also do a deep dive into the creative process and how you construct a great wrestling match. This is no time. If you like what you see, then do hit subscribe on YouTube, follow on Spotify or rate 5 stars on Apple Podcasts. This project runs on your love and support. So if you'd like to see it continue, do consider making a donation on Patreon, Anchor, or Instagram. And if not through financial contributions, then do consider sharing these episodes, leaving your likes and comments. All forms of engagement, they really go a long way. For the forms of love and support, you can follow this channel on Instagram or Twitter, or follow me personally. And now, it's no time. The day is April 27, 2018. It's the greatest Royal Rumble at the Shining Jewel in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. You are standing in gorilla position. You're about to step out in your first segment as a WWE superstar in your home country, in front of your friends, in front of your family, in front of thousands of people. Let's go back to that moment. What was that feeling like? What was going through your mind as you were standing in gorilla position? I was excited, but I was also nervous because uh, actually at that point, I wasn't a WWE superstar. Uh, I hadn't been officially signed. I had just been a part of the tryout and they emphasized over and over. They said, this is not a contract. <laughs> You're not signed full time. And actually after that, I was uh, back home for maybe three months before I actually got the call saying, hey, we're picking you up and moving you to Orlando. Uh, so I sort of saw it as a job interview or a tr or, 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 or not a trial because I already did the trial. But this was like, all right, we've seen what he can do in the ring as a trainee. Now let's see if he has the presence and the comfort in front of an audience that really cements somebody as a great performer, as a great WWE superstar. So we, now, we went out there, we did our segment and uh, with the Davaris who are amazing. And, uh, you know, we raised, I remember one of the things they uh, complimented me on was I took the hands of all the other Saudi boys and I raised their arms and we made sure to turn to all sides of the ring and finish off uh, against the hard camera, yeah. which is the camera that's facing the most people in uh, yeah. WWE. So uh, I thought it went well. Um, but at the same time, I was like, nothing's ever a guarantee in pro wrestling. But at least when I went back to the Indies uh, soon after that, before I got signed officially, I was able to up my fee a little bit because <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I did the big crown jewel on the greatest Royal Rumble show. So that was cool. But I, I really didn't feel the pride that I felt as a Saudi, as a, a, as a Saudi in front of my family when I, until I had that battle Royal match. And, and honestly, even then, I didn't feel real pride for my work until I had the match with uh, Cesaro, Claudio Castagnoli, because yeah. that was the first time that I actually did a match one-on-one, bell-to-bell. Yeah. Whereas with the Battle Royal, I, my presence in the match wasn't really known until maybe like five yeah. minutes were left. But as far as that first appearance goes, I was just elated to have finally been on the big stage. And I took it as an opportunity that uh, ultimately kind of helped me uh, make my way forward in my career. How does that feeling compare with the feeling that you had a gorilla position and just before your debut on Monday Night Raw, because like you mentioned, you had made multiple appearances for WA by that stage. Maybe it's become slightly routine. Maybe the magic has started to fade slightly. Did that feeling change when you were about to make your debut for Monday Night Raw? You mentioned it was like an interview at first, but you weren't, you were elated, of course, but it didn't really sink in. Yeah. By your Raw debut, you had that sunk in? Well, it, it was different because um, I had done the match uh, with the biggest battle royal and then I had done the match at Crown Jewel with uh, Cesaro, Claudio Castagnoli. And um, obviously, those were huge, huge moments on premium live events, pay-per-view in front of uh, 50, 60,000 people. It, does, it doesn't get bigger than that besides WrestleMania. Yeah. You know what I mean? So uh, as nervous as I felt then, I also felt, I still, I still feel nervous. I just wrestled maybe in front of 300 people at an independent uh, show. Uh, the week, weekend before that, or the day before that, I wrestled in front of like 800 people. It doesn't matter how many people I'm wrestling. I could be wrestling in front of my wife and daughter. I'll still feel nervous because yeah. <laughs> I have such a high standard for myself in my performances that like when they go wrong, like I remember having a match where I, I botched a move. I messed up. And I, I delayed on the timing of something. And I thought about that mistake for months. I still think about it. But 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 right after it, it, it kept me up at night. 
I really am like, a, I, I punish myself for those kinds of mistakes. And I'm, I'm, I'm always my own worst critic. So when it was finally time to come and debut on Raw, um, it was different because it was actually the complete opposite, essentially, of my appearances at Crown Jewel or Super Showdown in my home country because there was no crowd. It was during the pandemic. Yeah. So we were in the Thunderdome where there's screens of people's faces and the sound is all, but it's the same MP3 audio file every time. I made my debut against Sheamus and it was a different kind of nerves because this was the first time I was being thrust in front of an audience outside of my home country in terms of a wider national television audience. Now it was a test of, okay, this kid can perform in front of his hometown, his family, his friends, his people, but can he succeed in front of an American audience? I mean, Raw and SmackDown, it's worldwide, but for the most part, they were thinking, okay, let's take him outside of Saudi Arabia. How does he appear? Does he fit in on the roster? And I remember one of the first things that happened was I had the match with Sheamus and everybody was happy with it. I went to uh, Vince McMahon, who was my boss at the time. I said, hey, what do you think? Could I have done anything better? He said, no, I loved your uh, facial expressions, you, your, your heart, your grit. I need you to put on 20 pounds, though, because you're a small, uh, skinny guy. At the time, I was 175 pounds. So he, ha- he gave me his personal trainer, who he works out with. And he said, here's your diet. Here's your workout regimen. And I went from 175 to like 200 pounds. Now I'm floating around 205, 210. It's hard because I'm a naturally very slim guy, um, very high metabolism. So I have to eat a ton of carbs and protein every single day, limited fat. I'm eating bagels. I'm eating chicken, rice. Pancakes. Protein pancakes my wife makes for me because she's the best. I'm drinking protein shakes basically like every hour, uh, two of them sometimes at a time. So uh, yeah, I I took Raw as a test of my longevity in the business. And I was lucky enough to get maybe two, two and a half years out of the main roster before I, I got released. So uh, I, I value my time because I learned so much and, and now I'm so happy because I get to go out all over the world uh, on my own uh, with my own schedule and my own sort of freedom to do as I wish uh, with all that knowledge. You brought up two very interesting points. I do have follow-up questions for you. One, you mentioned about how your Monday Night Raw debut is a way of testing whether you succeed in front of an American audience. We'll come back to that. Let's park that question. First, you mentioned that you set such a high standard for yourself. In a previous interview, you had mentioned that after the greatest Royal Rumble, you remember thinking to yourself, I've got this moment. If tomorrow things go downhill from here, the fact that I just had this opportunity in this moment, this is the world to me. And then you mentioned the same interview that next day you woke up and you were like, okay, what's What's next? next? What's next, right? 100% not true. I'm always thinking what's next. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. In the same interview, you mentioned that feeling just lasts one day. Do you think this is a challenge for people in your line of work where Every single time where you have a moment, you always start thinking about the next big thing. In a way, it's like the curse of greatness, right? You'll never settle. You'll never be, you'll never be comfortable with where you have. You're always thinking about what's next? How can I get even bigger? How can I go even higher? Is this like a struggle? Is it a challenge for you as well? Oh, 100%. I can tell you right now, Seth Rollins wants to be Roman Reigns. I can tell you Roman Reigns wants to be John Cena. I can tell you John Cena wants to be The Rock. And The Rock... God, I don't know what he wants, but I'm sure there's more that he wants. They wouldn't be in their position if it wasn't for the fact that they weren't satisfied with what they have. Um, and like you said, it is sort of that curse of greatness. Uh, God, I just, I, I, every single time I had something, I was like, what's next, what's next, what's next? And my wife would say, just settle down and be thankful for what you have. Yeah. And then we can go, nope, can't do no. it. <laughs> I'm, I'm at yeah. night, I'm in my bed tossing and turning, thinking of promos, matches, ideas, yeah. uh, characters, gimmicks, pitches. It's just kind of... And I don't think I'll ever stop until I, I retire. And then even when I retire, my dream is to teach at a school or, or work in creative because I always want to be around the business. I, I love it so much. Um, sometimes you feel like it doesn't love you back. It's kind of a weird relationship where uh, so many wrestlers are just in love with this thing that sometimes just breaks you down physically, spiritually, mentally, but you can't get away from it. Uh, it's like an abusive relationship, but when it's great, there's nothing like it. Let's touch upon, you're giving me so many interesting things, so many follow-up questions. For, let's touch upon that. Is there a part of you that misses not being able to watch wrestling as just a fan? Because now that you've worked in the industry, you have, in a way, it's like finding out the secret of a magic trick. Like you find out how an illusion's performed. And of course, there's a, there's a very popular saying that never make your passion or your hobby your profession because yeah. that becomes work, right? Yeah. So you're putting in your long hours, physical, mental effort, there's backstage politics, all of that starts to corrode the original passion for the industry that you had. Is there a part of you that like now when you sit down and you put on a wrestling show, it misses the fact that you can't just watch wrestling, something you love so purely as just a fan because you know so much about the industry, your mind's always going to go there. Yeah, 100%. I, 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 
it's brutal because whenever I watch wrestling now, I just get angry or yeah. upset because <laughs> I'll, I'll see, I'm going to sound so bitter, but I'll see some of the worst wrestling. I'll see some of the worst promos. And uh, like, especially when I was working now that I'm out, it's so much more freeing because I can just watch and be like, Oh, cool. When I worked there and I wasn't on TV and I was either kept home or backstage and I knew that I had the capability and the talent to do great things, particularly from a character and, and verbal uh, communicative uh, aspect. Um, when I would see people go out there and, and just uh, the performances were not compelling. And it would just make me boil inside. I, the metaphor I always use are under uh, ice, right? Trying to break yes, out. Yes, you're yeah. under ice, and you yeah. just can't find a hole. And yeah. meanwhile, you can see people walking by, <laughs> yeah. and you're like, "God, just why am I not up there?" It's yeah. it's brutal, but you you can't take it personally because it, how good you are really doesn't matter. It's just a matter of are you in the right place at the right time, and are you ready for the opportunity that they give you when they're uh, ready to give it to you? Um, that's what I always say. I just said it. I did a seminar. I did a class for a bunch of wrestling trainees. And what I basically told them is you guys are going to have to get as good as you possibly can be. So in one year, two year, three year, five year, 10 year, 20 years, when you finally get that opportunity in front of a big crowd, you're ready. It's not going to come to you the moment that you get ready. It's yeah. going to come either a, a day after or, or 10 years after. That's just the reality of the situation. And um, that's why for me at 28 years old, it's, it's kind of no sour grapes about getting released because God, I'm so, I'm so happy I can go out there. I, I've met people that have connected me with other people. And, and finally, I feel like even though I was in the largest professional wrestling company in the world for five years with the biggest audience and the most outreach, I feel like I've made more uh, meaningful connections than I have uh, now outside of WWE than I did in it. I remember um, after I got released, I, I put out just like a one minute video of me cutting a short promo, promoting myself, saying, hey, in 90 days, I'll be available for bookings. And people, I was in the company for five years and people, hundreds of people were telling me, I didn't know you could talk. <laughs> I didn't know you could uh, cut a promo like that. I didn't know you had charisma or charm. And I was like, God, that's brutal. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I'm happy now because people are getting to see that and who knows where I'll go next. Uh, but to speak to your point, to go back to what you were asking, when your hobby becomes your profession, it, it can kill your love for it. But at, at the same time, I have to say, when I come away from a match that I am truly proud of, it is a greater sense of fulfillment and joy than I ever had as a fan mm. uh, to be able to create uh, what I appreciated as a fan for fans. Yeah. Um, that's why my philosophy in wrestling was always, I want to create a moment. I don't necessarily want to build myself up as a star. I want to create moments and matches and segments and moments for other people where fans will be able to say until the day that they die, until the day that they're put underground, I remember that moment and I will remember it for the rest of my life. I think that's how we live. We live through memories and we live through moments that are repeated on, on video uh, until human civilization ends. Yeah. Um, not necessarily to say that my, my biggest um, goal in my life is to be remembered. Uh, what I mean to say rather is that if I watch The Undertaker in a casket, get hit by a bolt of lightning and it explodes into flames and he kicks down the door and hits everybody with choke slams. If I can provide that, whatever the yeah. equivalent of that is for any child or person on earth, then I feel I will have done my job. You want to create these moments, the heartbreak kid, Shawn Michaels, sure. once said that I'm going to go out there and give you a show that you've never seen before. Why? Because I can. You've always said that you were born to do this. Is there a specific moment in your life, a specific memory when you realize this is what I was born to do? This is what has meant is my life's calling. Yeah, I, I remember. Um, so I was a big wrestling fan as a kid. And then right around the time um, of like Eddie Guerrero passed away, yeah. the, the the horrible tragedy with the Benoit family. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I just I fell out of wrestling. I fell out of love with wrestling. A lot of people, I think, around like their teenage years tend to just kind of drift away. And then my older brother, uh, Trip, Trip Loon, who has a band back in Saudi Arabia and, and a whole like entertainment company. Uh, I'm so proud of him. He became a fan because of CM Punk. Yeah. And he was like, dude, you got to check out CM Punk and Daniel Bryan. These guys are awesome. And I was like, oh, I haven't watched <laughs> wrestling in a long time. Okay. I check it out. Totally love Punk. Totally love Bryan. Uh, a lot of my favorites are still there, like Kane and Undertaker, all those guys I remember. And then new people I appreciate, like Dolph Ziggler, I was a big fan of. Cesaro, I was a big fan of. Um, and uh, once I got back into it, I was like, okay, 
because I had done a lot of acting in my life. I enjoyed performing, but I always felt like there was something missing in acting. Um, I liked doing plays. Um, I, I liked uh, directing. I liked writing, but it, it wasn't, I didn't feel like it was my passion. And if something like acting or creating theater isn't your passion, you really shouldn't be doing it. You know what I mean? Because it's one of those, it's like wrestling. If wrestling isn't your passion, why are you doing it? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a certain, it's a, it's a, a thankless job and you're probably not going to make any money until you do one day. Yeah. Uh, so I was like, well, what do I really want to do? I, I want to be in the professional wrestling world. I love this. I didn't think I could be a wrestler. I thought I would be a manager, a referee, a writer. I actually applied to be an intern at WWE headquarters when I was like 17, 16 years yeah. old. Uh, and then when I was 17 or 18, I remember I watched uh, Daniel Bryan and John Cena, SummerSlam 2013, when Daniel Bryan won the WWE championship. And I said, oh my God, here's this guy that everybody said would never be successful in WWE. Everybody said Vince was going to hate this guy. He's never going to be anything. He's never going to amount to anything, even though even though he's incredibly talented. It doesn't matter because in WWE, it doesn't matter how good you are. And I saw him beat John Cena, the number one guy, the most protected guy in the company, clean as a whistle for the top uh, prestigious championship in our sport. And I was like, hey, if I get good enough for this thing, I think I could do it. And part of it was like, I'm not short, but I'm a skinny uh, Arab who uh, historically, you know, that group of people haven't really done particularly well in wrestling or weren't really presented in a great light. And then around that same time, I watched Sami Zayn uh, perform in NXT and he had Zayn uh, written on his tights. And I remember thinking that's the first time I've ever seen Arabic written um, on anyone's gear. And he was in a, he was presented in a positive light and he was a baby face. He was a good guy. And um, the fact that he was Arab didn't really dominate his personality. It simply was a crucial piece of, of who he is as a person. And I thought maybe there is hope for me in the sense that maybe there is something that I can do in this field where um, my background won't actually hinder me. Uh, ironically enough, it's what got me my job. <laughs> yeah. But also it did kind of hinder me as well. It was kind of a double edged sword to, to tell you the truth. But I'm sure you have questions about that. I do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah please. Yeah, you give me so many, you open up so many doors for me to start I know, going I down. Okay, let's talk about the love for wrestling, which we, which is the premise of the question. Let's go back even further. In 2003, you were at a tutor's house where the son was watching SmackDown yeah. on the television. Yes. And he was watching the Iron Man match between Brock Lesnar and Kurt Angle. Yeah. And that was one of the first wrestling matches that you remember watching. From there, your brother Talal pulled you in into wrestling and you spent days playing No Mercy, no Mercy on yeah. Nintendo 64. SmackDown, here comes the pin. Yeah. When you look back now in those days, are you able to pinpoint what it was about wrestling that pulled you in at that young age that sucked you in completely and made a fan out of you? I think it's just modern, you know, gladiatorial combat Um, in the same sense that I was a fan of like the Power Rangers. Here was the Power Rangers essentially, but in the form of real people in front of a real crowd every single week live. Well, not it wasn't live, obviously, because I was watching it in Saudi Arabia, but um, still like the, uh, there's just nothing like it. There's nothing like it. It's like, it's like watching a superhero movie in real life. It's yeah. like the uniqueness uh, of wrestling, of pro wrestling. The reason why there's so many fans is because you can't get it anywhere else. Pro wrestling competes with real sports. I mean, basketball, football, um, uh, of course, American football, soccer, whatever. Um, rugby, uh, we're competing with other entertainment. We're competing with, uh, people going to see concerts and, and shows and movies. Um, but at the same time, any one of those things is nothing like pro wrestling. There just isn't anything like it. Um, the closest I can even compare it to is like a a musical on Broadway. Like that's the closest thing I can compare it to. Um, but really in its, its essence, it's the only thing you can see of that kind of thing. Uh, one take fight choreography. Uh, wild, fantastic characters, passionate monologues, storylines from a week to week standpoint, like a serialized television show. It's so incredibly unique. And I think that's why it draws so many people in. Um, what was your original question? That was it. I think you did okay, answer what Austin drew you into wrestling. Oh, you yeah, mentioned, it, yeah. Just how unique it is. And yeah. I had never seen anything like it in my life. I agree. Let's map that out with what you mentioned earlier about how you had a falling out with wrestling. You've Fellow who didn't follow it as much. And then your brother Talal once again pulled you yes. in with CM Punk's pipe bomb promo. Then you watched Brandon Bryan versus John Cena and you thought to yourself, I can do this. Over this period, when you first fell in love with it and then you came back to wrestling, did that change the way you viewed wrestling? Did you fall in love with it for a different reason? When you came back to it, did you now fall in love because you viewed it as a business? You mentioned you applied as an intern as well. You're more interested in the creative side until you watched that match. Were you now more interested in it as a business? as a creative 
as an art form or do you think you still gravitate towards it because it was gladiatorial combat like you mentioned no definitely it changed for sure um because as i got older i started to question the creative decisions yeah. <laughs> i would be i would get on the internet more and find forums and uh chat rooms where we talk about wrestling and complain about what was going on and who was getting uh pushed and presented well and who wasn't yeah. <laughs> um i became a smart mark but as a kid you just go, oh, no, my favorite guy lost. Oh, well. Like, oh, no. Oh, yeah, my favorite guy won. It doesn't matter. And plus, my favorite guy was The Undertaker, so he almost never lost. Um, yeah, I would just, I remember I, we were in uh, Dubai with my with, with my uh, father and my mother, and I ordered WrestleMania, and I watched it live with my dad. It must have been at, like, 3 a.m. And I saw, that was the WrestleMania where Undertaker wrestled Batista for the World Heavyweight Championship. Yeah. And I was literally jumping up and down on the couch while my dad was watching, smiling, because I was so excited for every single false finish and every near fall, every kick out of the Batista bomb, every kick out of the choke slam. Yeah. It made me lose my mind. Um, so I, I, you kind of lose that childlike innocence when you're watching and all you can think about is what are the business decisions going behind this and what are the creative decisions going behind this? And that's why I think it's so important for people who truly love pro wrestling to expand their horizons and not just watch WWE or not just watch AEW, but check out a lot of the independent promotions or even the historical. Go back and watch um, Old Ring of Honor, uh, PWG, uh, Dragon Gate USA, um, CZW, uh, all kinds of uh, professional wrestling for Chikara. They have, they've told incredible stories that are going to be lost to time if dedicated fans didn't uh, prioritize putting all that up on the internet. So, um, yeah, and as I get older, like I said, it, it's such a contradiction because I will say that Daniel Bryan winning the WWE Championship proved to me that if you're good enough, you will succeed. At the same time, I always tell my, the students that I talk to, it really doesn't matter how good you are. <laughs> <laughs> what matters is how good you are when you get the chance to show how good you are. Yeah. So I think for Daniel Bryan, those moments were picked and he uh, benefited from being the best wrestler in the world, the times when he was allowed to be the best wrestler in the world. In my experience in WWE, it's very difficult to get that opportunity where they say, let loose. I got that chance with Cesaro, um, and that might be it. <laughs> in terms of Ali, maybe. Yeah. A little bit, yeah, yeah. but um, yeah. you know, that match, I'm very proud of that match because uh, unless I'm wrong, I think it was the first time two Muslims wrestled each other on pay-per-view. Yeah, um, cool. At the same time, uh, it was supposed to be longer, but then there was a lot of like fun stuff that happened at the end of the match, uh, which was great. But uh, as far as a match goes, like I, I think if we had like three, four, five more minutes, it, it would have really put it over the edge into being like awesome. Like I remember actually we followed Edge versus Seth Rollins, Hell in a Cell, yeah. which was like a five star match. They absolutely killed each other with everything. And me and me and Mustafa looked at each other like. Bah. <laughs> We're going to go out there and work a wrist lock, headlock. And I was so happy that the crowd was like, great. I think we reset yeah. after all the weapons and high spots and crazy stuff that happened in Hell in a Cell. We just took it back down to pro wrestling. And I, I'm so happy that the crowd was was with it because it could have been completely dead. And then we would have been it would have been over. Yeah, that can make or break it. Yeah, 100%. Just to your original point, even I had a similar phase of disillusionment, like a disenchantment with WWE. Like I was a huge fan. And then when I found out it was scripted, like I fell away from it slightly. And even the booking decision didn't agree with them. And then I remember I was pulled back into wrestling in SummerSlam 2009, which is DX's final run when they oh, came wow, back. Yeah. And then I was hooked on for a different reason because now I knew it was scripted. So I was viewing it as a, an art form. An art form, yeah. exactly. Like a very unique form of entertainment, like you mentioned. And because I knew it was scripted, I was respecting it for a different reason altogether. Exactly. Right? And then I was a fan from there on. Let's, let's pivot a bit. Let's talk about Saudi. Is it surreal to you that over the last five years, Saudi's become this hub for global sporting events? Because I just mentioned to you earlier as well that I, and I grew up in the Middle East. It was unthinkable yeah. for me that the Middle East would have these type of events and these type of stars would come there. Now in Saudi, you have WWE's been hosting events. UFC is going to start hosting events. Formula One is there. The biggest football stars are moving there. You're also going to have the biggest boxing matches in Saudi. To me, this was unimaginable. Just like the most ambitious crossover you can ever think of. Is it surreal to you or did you always see that coming? No, it's surreal. I remember being a kid watching SmackDown and thinking, God, I don't think I'm ever going to get to see this in, yeah. in my life in person. And, and that's kind of a depressing thought. But I remember when I was doing the shows and I would see kids in the crowd, I go, God, I'm so happy. Yeah. I'm so happy they get to see this in person. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, but when you just look at like, not just the entertainment stuff, but how much the country has changed. Like I remember when I was a, a, a kid, uh, I don't even remember this, but my mom told me about it because she's American. When I was a baby, 
I got sick, but my dad was at work. She couldn't drive me to the pharmacy. She walked me to the pharmacy. It was pouring rain. And I guess she wasn't wearing a hijab. So she went to the pharmacy and um, got the medicine. And then she was approached by religious police, Motawa. And the police was basically like, you got to put a, you gotta put a hijab on. Like you're, you're, you're uncovered. And my mom was like, I don't have to do anything. I'm an American. And he pointed a gun at her and said, you got to cover up. And what my mom ended up doing is we went back home. She called his supervisor and got him fired. So uh, <laughs> I, that was the way that my mom was. She's a very headstrong, independent woman. She was in the military. Uh, her and Saudi Arabia did not mix at all. And that's probably why we moved ultimately. But when we went back, God, it was just so different. I mean, there's boys and girls going on dates. Yeah. Uh, you know, I knew a guy when I was a kid living there. I knew a guy who was put in the back of a van and lashed because he was out with a girl who wasn't his sister's cousin or, you know, any relation. So to not only see that, but to see men and women sitting together, uh, watching uh, sporting events or entertainment shows or, or going to the movie theater, that yeah. is pretty crazy to me. Um, and, you know, that's great. I'm so happy that uh, people get the opportunity to, to, to have fun and, and, and be entertained. Yeah. Do you think it's possible in the next decade we might see a very different style of pro wrestling, an Arab style, a Saudi style, a Middle Eastern style? Because I find it very interesting Mexico took pro wrestling and they created Lucha Libre. Yeah. Japan took pro wrestling. They created a very distinctive style of their own. Do you think it's possible we might see a Saudi style, a Middle Eastern style? And if your answer is yes, what might it look like? Um, you know, when I when I look at sort of the lay of the land as far as like what fans in the Middle East kind of look at, it's difficult because I definitely think WWE doing shows in Saudi Arabia uh, has renewed a lot of interest in wrestling and i yeah. see promotions popping up all over you know there's wrestlefest in dubai um there's spw in, in saudi arabia um qpw in um uh, i think bahrain uh no 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 that's that's qatar qpw is in qatar uh, kingdom pro wrestling is in bahrain yeah um and uh all kinds of promotions i mean they've been around a while but now now that wrestling's in the region people are like oh wow i can be a wrestler like, I'm going to go to these places and train. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that's really cool. As far as the style goes, it's difficult because it's hard for me to imagine what kind of new style there is. I mean, Lucha Libre is obviously distinct. Uh, the UK has a technical sort of gritty aspect. American is all pageantry and characters and showmanship. Yeah. Japan is strong style, right? They just beat the out of each <laughs> other. Uh, so I'm trying to think, like, what would be a new uh, special kind of uh, style? Maybe a, a synthesis, a fusion? Um, I think with uh, Arab fans, definitely, I feel like they would, as Chris Hero likes to say, uh, North American, or rather just American pro wrestling is a morality play. It's good versus evil, right? Crowds like to see a good guy versus a bad guy, and the bad guy cheats to win, or the good guy overcomes and is victorious. And I feel probably in the Middle East with our culture, I think we might try to see a similar uh, thing because I, there is a heavy sense of honor, uh, morality, mm -hmm. doing the right thing, being a man or, or, or being the best example of a man or woman you can possibly be. So uh, it kind of I, <laughs> reminds me of like Puerto Rico in the sense that uh, bad guys in Puerto Rico would just be despised because there's such a high standard of how you're supposed to act as a decent human being in Middle Eastern countries because of the heavy emphasis on Islam, religion, um, and, uh, of course, upholding your honor and obviously your family name is very important. So I wonder if there's an aspect of like that kind of storytelling where it's not so much about the moves, but it's about the good versus evil aspect of it that fans can really attach onto. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. I would love to see that type of style evolve in more where the morality, the moral compass is amplified right. a bit more. A tangent I want to take from this and this is something you brought up earlier as well, which is the point about whether you would succeed in front of an American audience, we talk about your Monday Night Raw debut. Let's go back to it. When you were young, I believe your father took you to a, to a wrestling show and there was this foreign heel character called The Sheik, The Sheik. Oh, this was way yeah. before I was born. I mean, this was like the 70s or the 80s. Oh, so this is when your father so went on his own. he was in college. All yeah, right, yeah, yeah. he went on his own and yeah. he watched the wrestling show where there was a Sheik was performing by yes. an Italian guy and it yeah. was this stereotypical foreign heel gimmick, right? It was played by an Italian guy. And he came out thinking that this sport will never respect your people the right, will never treat them the right way. I also want to add to that something you mentioned in a previous interview about how sometimes you've struggled with the sense of identity in the sense that you felt that maybe you're too Arab for the Americans or too American for the Arabs as well. How difficult is it for you to create a gimmick or a persona that's the perfect combination 
where you have a nod and an acknowledgement to your roots in Saudi, you're quite proud of that heritage, but you don't want to fall down the trap of creating that same stereotypical foreign heel, especially in an industry where you mentioned anyone who's not from America is immediately the heel, immediately booed. Like Rusev, his entire gimmick was he's Russian and he's booed for that reason. A lot of Canadian wrestlers, even though it's just North huh. America, are just booed yeah. for that reason. The Iron Sheik, the great Kali, Gunther initially as well. All of them were vilified and hated just because they were not American. How challenging is it for you to create that gimmick where you want to have the connection to Saudi, to the Middle East, but also create something totally unique? It's tough because, um, you know, the thing about guys like Gunther is that he's naturally a heel. And I think just him being foreign escalates the perception of the character because to the average person being different is scary, yeah. right? Um, but uh, like I look at a guy like Shinsuke Nakamura and I go, oh, he's easily a babyface. You know what I mean? I, I think we are at least in modern times a little more accepting of um, foreign babyfaces. Yeah. But when it's time to turn on the I'm an evil foreign guy, yeah. it's easy to just switch that. Yeah. You know what <laughs> I mean? Shinsuke did it. Um, yeah, all these guys did it. But um, I think it depends on how you present yourself. So the problem I think with me is that um, as a baby face where my gimmick was that, hey, I'm the guy from Saudi Arabia, there wasn't really anything for Americans to latch on to. You know, Shinsuke had an awesome entrance. Uh, he had a great style. Yeah. He had a lot of work in Japan where people can go and watch that and see how big of a star he was. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, it was just like, oh, here's this upstart, but also he's not from here. Yeah. So really, you have no reason to like this guy. You've never seen him on TV. He's not from here. You can't relate to him. So that's why I think I really enjoyed the storyline I did with uh, with Mustafa Ali because it endeared me to the audience in the sense that, oh, he's like a little kid. He's like, he's just like me. Or he's just like my little brother. He just wants to do the best he can. And he has this mentor who is bitter and grumpy and uh, wants to just harden those edges and, and, and make him a more cynical person. But he just has so much energy and he's such a blue chipper that uh, it, it added a, a, another dimension, yeah, I think, yeah. to the character that I really enjoyed. And and even with like, you know, people poo-poo on the maximum male model stuff, but <laughs> I enjoyed it because it was such a complete departure from what I was doing before yeah. that I got to show a certain amount of range that I think I never would have gotten to otherwise. And I, I when I got released, I had more people reach out to me offering stuff and offering connections and bookings and opportunities because they enjoyed the maximum male model so much. They were like, dude, I know you can take anything they give you. Same thing goes with my partner, Mace. Anything they give you, you're going to give 100% and you're going to make the most out of it. And that's what's great about a professional wrestler. So I'm glad that I did it because it gave me a lot of opportunities. Um, as far as like a foreign heel goes, yeah, I, my father, I mean, he told me when I told him I was going to be pro wrestler, he was like, it's not for us. And, um, you know, I remember when I had that battle royal match, that was when he was like, okay, I get it. And then I had the match with Cesaro and he was like, now I really get it. Because <laughs> uh, the battle royal was this great moment. I yeah. jumped into the arms of my father and my brother. Yeah. But he didn't really understand the beauty of pro wrestling until I had that match with Cesaro where he was literally standing on his feet going, oh my, I don't, yeah. whoa, like who's going to win? You know what I mean? So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy I got to do it. I'm, I'm, you know, it's tough because um, like you said earlier, too American to be Saudi, too Saudi to be American. Um, God, I, I, I see things all the time where people are like, people in America are like, oh, he's from Saudi Arabia or whatever. And I see Saudis who go, look at him, he's, He's not representing us correctly. And yeah. at this point, I've totally just, I'm going to be myself. I'm going to be proud of where I come from. And if I'm not living up to the standards of what you think I should be living up to, that's fine. Because I'm a husband, I'm a father, and I'm going to provide for my family while having fun doing my dream job. And at this point, that's really all that matters to me. Now that I'm not in a multi-billion dollar company representing a multi-billion dollar deal between a country and a, a mega corporation, yeah. I can finally breathe easy <laughs> and I can do something crazy like I did last night uh, at a bar. I, I don't even drink. I don't drink. I, I don't smoke. I've, I've never done anything. Um, but I wrestled at a bar with no ring in a hardcore match with a guy. And I had a blast because I, I, I just, that's what I, what I want to do. I want to have fun. And uh, if I have, uh, if I get compensated enough to support my family, that's, that's really all that matters to me. Did you start to feel the weight of being the first Saudi Arabian WWE superstar? Like once you got out of it, did you start to see like the certain pressure that's off you that you didn't know was weighing you down? I mean, I still feel it a little bit because I, I have such a high standard for myself that I, I do feel bad when people are like, you know, oh, I mean, like I saw a comment that was like, Oh, like, because uh, I, I did an interview where I said after the match with Mustafa, Vince pulled me into his office and said, hey, the Saudis, they don't really want you on the shows anymore, or, or at least they don't, they don't care if you're on it. If you're on it, cool. If you're not, 
whatever. They just want big stars. Big stars yeah. And I remember somebody said, well, that doesn't surprise me. Like Mansoor cut these awful Arabic promos. Like all the Saudis were like laughing at him. And I was like, that kind of, it, it's probably true. You know, <laughs> like my, I did my best to pronounce the things. I, I made a couple errors and it's tough because, you know, English, I learned Arabic at a young age, but once I moved, you know, my dad stayed in Saudi Arabia. So it was just me and my American mom and my sisters. And I just, you know, I can read and write it. I just have a hard time in conversation. And uh, there were little, you know, being the problem is if I was from any other Middle Eastern country and I performed in Saudi Arabia, it'd be like, oh, OK, cool. But it's the fact that I was their boy, yeah. that the standard was so high. So I was never going to live up to that role. And I've kind of had to deal with that my whole life Too American to be Saudi, too Saudi to be American. And, and at a certain point, I just had to kind of understand that really the only thing that matters is that I'm a good enough father and a good enough husband and a good enough brother and a good enough son and a good enough professional wrestler. No, that's a great outlook. Why we're talking about Saudi, Mansoor, let's set the record straight. Why is the Middle East obsessed with The Undertaker? Uh, dude, I, <laughs> and the fact that the, the rumor that he converted to Islam, yeah. like the, that, that, that uh, The Undertaker is now a Muslim and uh, he goes by Muhammad. Yeah, you know. um, yeah, I don't know. I really don't. I think it's because, I think it's like what I told you before. I think the, culturally in the Middle East, it's a morality play where we expect there to be characters, good and evil. And The Undertaker is such a fantastical, larger-than-life character. And usually, at least when I was a kid, he was a, he was a good guy. So he was a force of good, of, of sort of almost like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Dramatic good. Like, the man calls lightning from the sky. Yeah. It's, almost, it's almost like religious yeah. in the sense that he can cast miracles and, and do all these crazy things against evil. And I think that that's what sort of like speaks to, to, to Middle Eastern people and Arabs and and people, even in India, I feel like, or, or Pakistan, or these cultures look at The Undertaker and go, wow, yeah. here's this big, imposing guy who has magical powers, and he's also an incredible professional wrestler. It's like all the things mix into one, where you just have this perfect encapsulation of what we think is really cool as a culture. And uh, which is funny, because when I was growing up in Saudi Arabia, we, we, <laughs> we had a ministry, I think, to combat witchcraft. <laughs> here, here was The Undertaker uh, on live TV doing witchcraft. So I don't know. I, I, I met him. He's really cool. So, Were you nervous when you met him? Yeah. I was, oh, yeah, big time. The only two people I was nervous to meet, I actually didn't meet uh, Christian, because he's like one of my favorite wrestlers of all time. Yeah. But I felt like I had to meet Undertaker because like, Christian was like on the other side of the room and I was like, I was about to leave and I was like, ah, oh, he's talking to Edge. Like, I don't want to, I feel bad if I interrupt and I'm also nervous. Yeah. Um, but with Undertaker, I was like, hey, it's very nice to meet you, sir. I actually met him in Saudi Arabia when he was there for a match. Yeah. And uh, I, I can confirm that, in fact, he is not Muslim. He is, <laughs> he is Christian, but... but did uh, he burn Cain? Did he kill his... Did he, <laughs> did did he, he murder, burn down yeah. the house? He murdered his, murder his parents? Yeah, not very Christian of we, him to yeah. burn his parents. <laughs> we all believe that. When you're playing the wrestling cards, you know, yeah. do you know he burned yeah, down the, the house. I think actually they wrote a book about the the like the fictional history oh, of Kane and the Undertaker. Yeah. I, I I don't know if it exists, but I'm pretty sure I heard about it. I might look, I might try and find it. We used to talk about it all the time. He's like, oh Undertaker, remember he burned down his house. Yes. That's his brother. And Harper. I love Kane too. I thought yeah. Kane was bad. I, yeah. I loved him. Both of them, yeah. What a character, you're right. It's, um, Undertaker is such a singular character where he's like, he's reached out across so many regions and he connects with every single person. Even though the, 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 the gimmick itself is like, it's like, like you said, it's like an evil person or whatever. Like it's an otherworldly, supernatural yes. person, but still people connect with him and love him so much. Yeah. Such a unique character. I do want to pick your brains about the business as well, about the creative side. You have such a brilliant creative mind about the business. Thank you. In a previous interview, you had mentioned once that, and this is a very interesting insight, that you've said Vince McMahon has watched so much wrestling by now that he's probably jaded with it, which is probably why he gravitates towards the crazy ideas now, because that's what excites him now. You have performed under both Vince McMahon's regime and Triple H's regime. What are some of the big differences that you've noticed in the way they create shows? What are some insights that you've taken out of the way they operate shows? Um, I think it's tough because I, I really wish I got to talk to Hunter more. Um, I didn't really get the chance to talk to him. I talked to Vince a lot. The problem is when you talk to Vince is you could talk to him for 45 minutes to an hour and walk away thinking it was a great conversation. And then a day later you go, oh, wait, he didn't really say anything to me at all. <laughs> like Vince is like, oh, that's great. That's great. We'll definitely consider it. <laughs> yeah, no. Wow. Great idea. Let me read this. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of like this, this, this. And you'll be like, wow, he really loves it. And then a month later, nothing happens. I think, <laughs> I think he's just like a, he's really good at making talent 
appeasing talent is yeah. Vince. But um, you never know. Occasionally, like, for example, um, Nikki Cross, that Nikki uh, ASH uh, superhero gimmick was totally her idea. She had a binder with like sketch designs wow. and ideas for the character. She gave it to Vince. Six months later, they called her up and said, hey, Vince read your pitch. We're doing it. Um, so you never know what's going to hit off with him. And you never know. Well, you do know 95% of the time that whatever you pitch is going to get. <laughs> um, like I remember being told by somebody who had been in WWE. Hey, listen, don't fall for his lies. Because uh, like the guy was talking to me and he was like, he told me I was going to be tag team champion. I never was a damn tag team champion. So, uh, yeah, because with Vince, it's like if he tells you the plan is you guys are going to win the belts at the next pay-per-view and then it doesn't happen, what are you going to do? You're going to go up to him and say, you know yeah. what I mean? Some guys do that. Uh, guys who are much more important and more well-paid than me. But, um, yeah, I didn't really get to talk to Hunter much. Um, the times I did get to talk to Hunter uh, were like creatively. I actually had a little dispute with him, uh, which I thought was great because I, I love hashing it out with people creatively. I'm usually, I'm like not difficult to work with, I hope, but I tried to explain my point, which was we had a match with The New Day mm -hmm. and we had LA Knight, uh, who was Max Dupree at the time as our manager. And the story they were telling was that he was getting increasingly frustrated with how much we were losing because we kept modeling. He was like, you guys gotta stop modeling and start winning matches, which is funny because he started the freaking modeling promotion. It's a fair point. I think. Whatever. <laughs> So Hunter's note was, I want New Day to beat you guys. And then Max Dupree or LA Knight gets angry and throws his coat down and storms off. And I was like, okay, what can we do in this match to tell that story so that it's not just a match and then a post-match angle that are completely separate? So my idea was, we start to beat the New Day and it looks like we're going to win. And we get so cocky. I have Mace pick up a camera, one of the like cameras, and film me posing on Kofi. And then as he's holding the camera, he gets drop kicked and then I get rolled up and you see it from Mace's perspective. What ended up happening was Maxine gets a camera, she's flashing it, we're posing and then we lose. And I remember Hunter, Hunter saying, yeah, that's cool and all, but don't you think you guys look stupid? <laughs> and I was like, Hunter, we're the maximum male models. Like, of course we look stupid. That's the point. My name's Mansois. His name's Massey. <laughs> My argument to Hunter, and I think to his fairness, he did kind of get it and we all ended up ultimately doing it because of this but i said listen if we're losing i would rather we lose because of something we did than just then just because we stink and we got beat if we have an excuse that we lost which is we were overconfident and we're mo too busy modeling then not only does it say okay well they can wrestle the new day again and they'll have a claim to say we won one last time if it wasn't for the fact that we got busy modeling but the second point is we lost because we were modeling, giving Max Dupree more of an impetus to get angry with us. And I think that's when Hunter was like, oh, okay. Yeah, okay, we can do something like that. And I was so glad that, um, because I, I feel like with Vince, it would have been, Hunter was actually there to have that conversation. Vince was never in the bowl. He was never around the ring for rehearsals. So anytime you wanted to change something, no matter how minuscule it was, you had to tell your producer, your producer would run to Vince, talk to Vince, Come back, say no. <laughs> and then you did whatever they asked you to. So that's what I like. I like when it's a collaborative process. So yeah, I like I enjoyed uh, working for Hunter in that sense. I, I just wish I had more access to him. I, I think it's tough because when he took over as Booker, everybody wanted to talk to him. Everybody. Everybody wanted to get a feel about how their career was going to go under this new regime. And uh, sadly, I think... Um, you know, when Vince came back, there was some butting heads and some weird stuff happened with our character where they had to kill our gimmick because they were worried it was going to offend people. Uh, well, not people, but some very powerful people. Mm -hmm. So we were gone. And then I think when cuts happened, it was just like, these guys are on TV. You know what I mean? So sadly, that's the way it works. But um, yeah, I had, I had fun. And at the end of the day, like WWE, they do financially take care of their talent pretty well as far as on the main roster, at least. So uh mortgage is paid off cars are paid off so i'm happy about that happy yeah. about that yeah no very interesting insights such brilliant minds both triple h and vince mcmahon but two sure. different minds and definitely, two different personalities definitely, definitely and it's so interesting how their personality seeps into the show that they start creating like i remember when triple h was in charge of nxt that you could tell this is hunter's oh, show that's his baby yeah that's his baby and that's you could start baby. seeing the way 
he started playing the shows because he always used to be very huge on entrances and everyone had a very well thought out entrance. I remember. Oh, he's huge on it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I remember like Finn Balor, like the way it was thought out. And then there was a video that came about, about Hunter doing Finn Balor's entrance, yeah. crawling on the floor. And yeah. I thought that was insane. He was always yeah. out there, like with yeah, talent. Very hands on. I thought that was cool. I yeah. thought that was really cool. The only time I ever saw Vince out there for rehearsals were twice. Maximum male models. That and also, <laughs> of course, when he helped us do our debut was the Maximum male models. And then also... There was a pandemic segment uh, in the PC where Seamus was doing a urine test on Jeff Hardy uh, because he had just, <laughs> I guess, crashed a car on TV or something. And he was like, uh, take this urine test to see if you're drunk. And Jeff grabs, he, take, he goes behind a curtain, pees in the cup. Of course, it's not real pee. And he brings the cup to Seamus and he says, hey, Seamus, it's better to be pissed off than pissed on and throws the pee in his face. And I remember Vince coming down to me like, and then you say, better to be pissed off than pissed on. <laughs> he just thought it was the funniest thing in the world. That's Vince's sense of humor. Yeah. Pee, poop, fart, slime, uh, mud, drop it on people. Uh, so those are the two things. Those are the two times I saw him the most happy. <laughs> was doing our modeling segment and the, the pee segment with Seamus and Jeff Hardy. So now you know how to, how to appease Vince. You mentioned something interesting, and this will be the final big question, I guess, is... How do you go about constructing a good wrestling match? And I know this is a very unfair question. It's quite vague as well. Let's assume that you've been feuding with someone for the past few months. You've sure. got 15 minutes on a pay-per-view. I know this is still vague. Like you need to know what the storyline was about to be actually able to construct the match. But what I want to pick your brains on is what are the main questions that you're trying to answer when you're given 15 minutes as a blank canvas? How do you go about constructing a match and then planning the moves and the story that you're trying to tell? Uh, so typically what I do actually is I think a lot of people work backwards. They like to do their finish and then figure out what comes next. I kind of like to go from for the first step yeah. because in my mind, uh, the, the things that I do in the beginning of the match have to pay off and affect the later part of the match yeah. or else what was the point? You have to reward people for watching your match. You have to reward people who give you their attention because attention is so sparse nowadays. Yeah. Sparse? Sparse? I don't know. Attention is so sparse nowadays <laughs> that if people are to give you 15 minutes of their time that they could be spending on their phone, they could be spending on Twitter or TikTok or Instagram, but they're just looking at you for 15 minutes, which is such an incredibly like valuable amount of time to receive someone's attention, you have to reward them for paying attention. Yeah. So that's why if I ever have a match longer than like 10, 8 minutes, I always try to put things in the beginning of the match that pay off. I always try to make sure that whenever a heel outsmarts me and cuts me off because he cheats, that later in the match he tries to do the same thing and I outsmart him. I always try to make sure that if somebody takes my leg out or takes my arm out, later in the match I try to go for a move, ah, there's my arm. Yeah. Always pay it off. I always try to do something where if the heel um, kicks me in the face three times, when I run my comeback, I kick him in the face four times just to yeah. pay it back towards him. Uh, always reward the audience for paying attention and I think always pay back what was done to you onto your opponent. If you're a babyface, onto a heel. Yeah, that's great advice. Which was the greatest match in WWE history? History? Yes. Unfair questions. Um, <laughs> God. So for me personally, this is probably not the greatest match in history. I'll give you my top five. I'll give you my top five matches uh, that I love. Mm -hmm. uh, Batista and Taker at WrestleMania, I think 20... Three or two? One of them, right? Um, three, yeah. I love that match. Uh, I love um, John Cena and Umaga at the Royal Rumble. It was a last man standing match. Yeah. I think that was 06, maybe 05. I love that match quite a bit. Uh, Daniel Bryan and John Cena, SummerSlam 2013. Uh, Sami Zayn and Adrian Neville, now Pac. Uh, this was TakeOver. God, I don't remember which TakeOver, but it was also, I think, in 2013, 14. Around that time. Um, and then uh, my fifth, uh, wow, this is tough. <sighs> There's so many to choose from. Uh, maybe, maybe I would say, I, and I'm doing a disservice to like all the people who watched the Attitude Era because that wasn't really my time, you yeah. know what I mean? So I didn't really see those matches when they happened. I'm just thinking about matches that meant a lot to me and kind of influenced my style. Uh, I think Christian and Randy Orton had an amazing match that's very underrated. Uh, I believe it was Over the Limit, uh, 2012, or maybe 2011. 2011, I think, yeah. or 2010, uh, the early 2010s that I that I really really enjoyed. But I enjoyed that match more as a wrestler now 
than I enjoyed it as a fan back then. That's one of the first matches that I, oh God. And I also have to give a shout out to one of my favorite matches of all time. Brock Lesnar and Daniel Bryan, Survivor Series 2019, I think. One of the rare heel-heel matches in WWE history. And yet, what an incredible story they told. To me, this is a five-star match. Because it was one of the only matches I've ever seen, along with uh, Okada and Shibata at Dominion in New Japan. I don't remember what year it was. That made me forget that wrestling was fake. As a, as a wrestler... Yeah, I was watching that like, ah, and Brock Lesnar is the best at that because he kind of is just out there doing stuff for real. But he's very he's one of the best sellers of all time. He Daniel Bryan Danielson had Brock Lesnar in the yes lock, the label lock. And you could literally see Brock turning purple. Yeah. And when every time he took a, a Busaiku knee or, or got kicked in the knot, like he was selling that like. He is so incredibly good at that. And it means so much because he's such a monster and because he dominates so much of the match that when something happens to him, he doesn't need a million false finishes or near falls. The three or two that he does make the crowd explode. That's Goldberg, Brock Lesnar had, oh my God, that match was amazing at WrestleMania. Like it didn't need to be any longer than it was. It is exactly <laughs> what it needed to be. I'm going way longer than five matches, but those are just matches that I use as examples yeah. of look at these guys and look how they work. Fantastically. It's a tough question, of course. Like how do you even rank so many great matches in WWE history? Fantastic. Before we move into our final questions, I would love it if you can interpret what I've built with the Lego. Oh my God. What yeah. do you think these masterpieces okay. are? Uh, this is interesting. Uh, to me, this looks like perhaps some kind of utopia. That's what I was going for. Really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, you're ribbing me. Yeah. Like a city, like a city in the sky. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Like one of those, um, like you see it in like a studio, uh, Ghibli movie, like a fantastical setting. Like it's something see- Saudi might build, right? So, oh, you know, that's true. What? That one, <laughs> yeah. What's that new city? Neom or something? They're building the one like that's a, like a mile yeah, long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I see Roman columns here. Uh, yeah, this is very interesting. And then this is like a, a maybe a water tower. I used to, gr- I grew up around one of those. Wow. And then this. Yeah. Hmm, interesting. So there's a, the propeller at the top. <sighs> Seems yeah. in the flavor. <laughs> yeah. It's, it, it, could, it could, this could be a fly. This, to me, this is like a, you know how boats are like this? Yeah. To me, this is like a flying boat. Wow. Yeah. Like it, it just goes straight up and it, it uh, I'm, I'm in like a flying mood. Wow. Yeah. Because I, <laughs> yeah, I fly every it's week. Sending everything out. There. I think it's amazing that we get in giant metal contraptions and fly thousands of miles. I just, it boggles my mind. I'm too stupid for that. I'm too stupid to understand how boats work. I, I like, you can tell me how boats work. You can tell me how planes work. I will still never understand how something that size can fly or even float in the ocean. You're preaching to the choir. I mean, everything around me, I'm too dumb for it. Like, yeah, how, does, right. how does the phone work? How does the camera yeah, work? Like, yeah. How does the fridge work? Yeah, yeah. No. music is crazy to me. Like how, like vinyl, like yeah. CDs, yeah. How, how do they put it in there? I don't get it. I don't get how a vinyl, how you put a needle on it and it plays, apparently it's because of the waves and it plays waves in your mind. I don't know. It, dri- it drives me nuts. This generation like us that grew up on CDs, like there's so many myths, like, oh, if you blow on the CD, it might start work. Blow, yeah, blow right. Same with oh, video games. Video games, the yeah, cartridges, yeah. and if you blow yeah, on them, blow. floppy drives, USB drives. Right. Uh, I'm sure the people who invented it were like, what is going on? Nah, these, yeah. these kids are stupid. Okay, fantastic. What masterpieces and even better interpretations? Let's move into some of the closing questions. Sure. What are some books, movies, or role models that have strongly influenced you in your life? Um, even beyond wrestling. So my favorite comedian of all time was Norm Macdonald. He, yeah. he passed away. And uh, I read his book, which was an autobiography. Uh, most of it wasn't true. But the th- <laughs> what was fun about that book was that determining what was true and what was fiction was very interesting to me because it was all very funny, but there were kernels of like darkness or, 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 or genuine um, revelations that I could never tell. I mean, he, he kept the fact that he had cancer a secret. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, so who knows what happened in his life that he kept close to the heart. And of course I respect him for that. I mean, so many people reveal so much about, I've revealed so much about myself, but um, there's when a celebrity, when a person in the public uh, eye can keep something that important to themselves until the day they die. Uh, it's incredibly um, inspiring to me. Uh, it's brave. It's courageous, in my opinion. And people might think that's strange because how is it brave to not tell millions of people about something that happened in your life? But when you're in the position where you're like here, yeah. being interviewed every single week, um, podcasts, I mean, a lot comes out because you just talk. It's the same thing as therapy. You talk and talk and talk, and eventually the secrets come out. They spill out. It's just natural. 
So uh, Norm Donald definitely is a huge influence on me. Of course, I talk about wrestling. Brian Danielson, uh, Sami Zayn, Mustafa Ali is an influence on me. Um, uh, of course, I mean, The Undertaker was my favorite wrestler of all time. Of course he was <laughs> because I grew up in Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Uh, Christian is a big influence on me. Edge. Um, oh, yeah. Actually, CM Punk is a huge influence on me. As a kid, I actually was drawn to CM Punk because and I played as him in all the career modes in SmackDown versus Raw. He was the first guy to ever come out on TV and say, I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't do yeah. drugs. And I didn't know what straight edge was. All I knew was that I was that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I was a, a very devout Muslim, little Muslim boy. And I had made the decision. I, I swore that I would never touch alcohol or tobacco or whatever. And uh, I'm not I'm not nearly as devout now. But I, to this day, I, it's just it's just not something that interests me. So even though I'm not part of that straight edge culture, I, I still kind of uh, felt that association with him. And at the same time, once once I sort of became a wrestler, especially in my early years, uh, I consider CM Punk to be the, if not one of the best uh, speakers and promos in professional wrestling history. Yeah. And I think you see his influence in a lot of younger guys like my generation in terms of less catchphrases, less shouting into the camera and more deliberate, honest conversation with your audience. Yeah. I mean, everything he says, you believe 100% because he says it with so much conviction. I don't know if he believes what he says, but it sure as hell seems like it. And that's, I think, the crux. Like, I studied acting, and that's all that acting is. Acting is just convincing yourself of what you're saying. And if you can convince yourself of what you're saying, you can convince millions of people of what you're saying. Um, as far as movies go, boy, I actually don't draw that much from movies, you know? Like, some of my favorite movies um, are a lot of people's favorite movies. Actually, one of my favorite shows of all time is Twin Peaks. Uh, Fire Walk With Me is an amazing movie. I, I love David Lynch's work. Um, I love Dale Cooper as a character. The problem I think is that a lot of the characters that I love in movies and TV shows are not really characters that I can reflect yeah. <laughs> in yeah. my life. Yeah. Like I want to be cool. I want to be badass. I want to be Darth Maul or Darth Vader <laughs> or someone cool. Yeah. I'm just not that guy. I, I just, I'm too, I just love having fun and I'm too goofy and I'm, I, I like to be funny. And, um, you know, sometimes it's better to go with what you're good at than, than fighting against it. But uh, who knows? One day, I'll, maybe I'll be a badass that shoots lightning. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> who knows? Fingers crossed. You yeah. don't know. Yeah, great list. I just want to make a comment about CM Punk. So I don't drink and smoke as well. Sure. And when I bought CM Punk, it was the first time that I actually watched someone who was, well, straight as I don't know the meaning of straight as well, but also made it cool, right? Because, yeah. Because right. the perception is always like, Whoa, oh, you don't drink. drink. Yeah, what a nerd or something of that sort. Yeah. Like, oh, how do you have fun? Yeah. But CM Punk was out there. He was cool and he was the guy. He was confident about yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. And, and yeah. I never, ever wanted to, uh, like, to me, the, to me, the, his best work was in the straight edge society. I yeah. love <laughs> that so stuff. Much. I loved yeah. it. Because it was sort of an elaboration on his work on the indies. And the, the, the Charles Manson look and uh, God, I just loved it. And um, it got such great heat because nobody likes being told that you're better than them. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So when he would come out and say, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't do drugs. And that's why I'm better than you. Yeah. Or uh, everybody raise your hand for the straight edge pledge. Like I get it. It's hokey and it's gimmicky, but I love it. I just love it so much because if you brought your family to a show and they've never watched wrestling before, CM Punk could come out and cut a promo and they would know exactly how to feel about him yeah. and they would remember him. You yeah. know what I mean? Like it totally translate. And that's why it's hard for me when I tell people, you know, they offer me a drink or they invite me to go to a bar and I say, oh, sorry, I don't drink. It's difficult for me because I don't ever want to imply that I think I'm in a more moral superior standard because yeah. of that. Exactly. It's just simply a personal choice. And, you know, especially I went to college here in the city. And part of being in college is partying and drinking. I just, I, I just didn't have that avenue to, you know, socialize and make friends. So it's tough. You're kind of handicapping yourself. But um, at the same time, I, I think it's sort of one of those things where if you stick with your convictions, it, it, it can impress people. You know, like I think, I think that's how it felt with CM Punk, where he came out there, and when you see a guy who looks like him all tatted up, yeah. and he says that he doesn't do any vices, it's like, wow, this guy's interesting. So yeah, I agree. Okay, so that was your list your role models, objectively, who was or is the greatest wrestler in WWE history? Um, Because <sighs> you have to look at their body of work. Yeah. And you have to consider, when you say in WWE history, do you consider the stuff they did outside of WWE or just in WWE? Yeah, let's make it easier, right? Let's say just in WWE. In WWE, yeah. okay. So... You got to think about 
the the greats, Austin and Rock, are two of probably the most well known wrestlers, and Hogan. But I would say, in terms of the the modern perception, Austin and Rock are the most popular, most well known wrestlers. The problem is when you actually look at their runs, they were incredibly short. Yeah, Austin had like a three year run on top. Rock had like a four year run on top, and then on and off coming back and doing guest appearances. Super short. And then you look at Cena's run, and it's like, God, it's like twelve years long. Right. Roman has had like an eight, nine year run on top way longer than the attitude era. You know what I mean? Um, Sean, God, if it wasn't for the fact that Sean retired early, that's a huge stretch of time. He could have been, you know what I mean? Like, because in my mind, when you just look at it in terms of pure a mixture of promo, charisma, look and work, Sean is in contention for the greatest of all time. hundred percent. If not, I mean, he kind of is when you just look at how good of a wrestler he was with how good of a talker he was. It's like nobody really competes with both of those levels. Yeah. But in terms of longevity and in terms of looking at someone's body of work and um, just taking a look at somebody who's done this for a long time and is consistently good probably has to be Taker. And I know that's a safe answer, but it's a safe answer for a reason. I mean, um, you know, personally, I feel like Taker really turned on in like 2005 in terms of like his work actually becoming like top, top, top notch. His character work was always awesome, but he was always hung up injuries or he wasn't working guys at a great level. And then in 05, he was working guys like Kurt Angle, Shawn Michaels, Triple H. Um, God, I wish he worked Cena at that time. Batista, I mean, uh, Jericho, like guys who are really, really, really top notch. So I think it has to be Taker or or, or maybe Cena. I think I'm going to say Taker, yeah. 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 Not a controversial answer at all, but it's my opinion. It doesn't have to be. I think it's it's one of the... It's a right answer because he is in the talks or in the Mount Rushmore for the best of pro wrestling. And he brought up an interesting point. There's so many what ifs in wrestling if Shawn Michaels didn't get yeah, God, injured. If the thing with his yeah. back, like who, yeah. who knows how he would have been. And The Rock, if he hadn't left and he had just stayed, he right. would have got like a decade in the industry. There's no, there's no question that he would have been the best. But because he left early, it was just right. always that question, right? Does that answer change if it's not WWE? Yeah, probably. Um, God, because when you look at the body of work that people have in Japan or yeah. in the UK or in Mexico. I don't even think I'm equipped to answer that question because I haven't watched all the wrestling from Japan and uh, Mexico and the UK and, and everywhere else in the world. Um, I, I, I can say that, um, you know, I, I look up to Brian Danielson so much yeah. because he just has a love for the game that I, 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 that I want, you know, I, I mean, I have that love. I, I just want to reach that level of success that he had where he got to have his dreams come true wherever he went. You know what I mean? Like he, he got to do wrestle kingdom in Japan and the Tokyo dome and, and he got to do WrestleMania in the main event in new Orleans and, and win the championship. I mean, that's just so amazing. And when you've reached the top of the industry and in multiple uh, territories, not just in America, but in the world, I think that's how, you know, you really made it. You look at guys who, who branch out and, and go beyond WWE like uh, Jericho um, Danielson, obviously Brock Lesnar, I mean, went to a different sport. I mean, the UFC yeah. MMA and he reached the pinnacle of that industry and then came back with a completely different style, which is also incredible. And if Brock, who, by the way, is super underrated, if he was really in love with wrestling, God, I couldn't even imagine the, the animal that he would be like, the thing about Brock is that he's one of those guys who, uh, loves his privacy more than anything else. And and loves, I think, the business of professional wrestling. But bell to bell, he's so phenomenal. He's so phenomenal. I think he's one of those guys who was just naturally gifted. I can't speak. I don't know Brock personally. I, I'm sure he loves the business. Yeah. But um, I, what I mean to say is if Brock worked week to week, yeah. house shows, you know, TV, God, I couldn't even imagine because the Brock that we saw on regular TV in 2004, uh, 2003, 2002, was a Brock that was like two, three years in the business. Yeah. At that level, oh my god, one of my favorite matches of all time that I forgot, Brock Lesnar and The Undertaker, Hell in a Cell, where Brock, where Taker has that cast, yeah. and the whole match, Brock's just ripping it apart yeah, and, and yeah. beating it up, <laughs> and, and Taker's grabbing Heyman, who's probably the greatest manager of all time, hands down, and pulling him into that. Oh, that's just a gnarly, gnarly... We don't really see a lot of those anymore because we can't bleed in WWE anymore, but gnarly, just disgusting fights. Um, just throwing it out there. I mean, there's a lot of Joshi matches from the eighties and nineties that are gnarly like that. Uh, I'm thinking of one in particular where I don't remember her name, but her hand just gets crushed. 
Uh, she was working, I think, uh, Aja Kong or, 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 or someone of a bigger stature. And um, that kind of style that you'll, you won't really see in WWE. And, and that's why I think it's important for the greats, the greats, to work everywhere. And uh, that, God, take her. I, I almost wish she did a cup of coffee in Japan. or yeah. You know what I mean? Wouldn't that be awesome? Yeah. I don't know. But uh, yeah, that's, that's so many what ifs. Okay, last two questions. In what turned out to be his final appearance ever, the Ultimate Warrior said the following words. Every man's heart one day beats his final beat. His lungs breathe their final breath. And if what that man did in his life makes the blood pulse through the body of others and makes him believe deeper in something larger than life, then his essence, his spirit will be immortalized by the storytellers, by the loyalty, by the memory of those who honor him and make whatever the man did live forever. In that spirit, what would you like your legacy to be? Uh, you're asking me to speak my final words right now? <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe he said that and passed away. Yeah. Like the next day. The next day. He must have known. Must. Um, uh, my le- my legacy is simple. Um, my legacy is my daughter and um, any children I have, and then whatever children they have, um, and their memory of me as a as a father and as a grandfather, and how I raised them and how I love them. That's the most important thing for me. Uh, as a professional wrestler, my memory is what I would like my memory to be is uh, someone who people watched and can think of and remember until the day they die as somebody that they appreciated, hated, or loved. Um, and I also, it would mean a lot to me because I am, I would like to be a teacher of this. Um, I would like to be good enough to the point where I can teach this to as many people as possible and open a school or be part of a school uh, because that is so uh, incredibly fulfilling for me is to teach. So if I can inspire people to become pro wrestlers, I think that is the greatest thing that I could do. Um, like I always said when I was in WWE, cause I was kind of acutely aware that I was not fulfilling um, the standard that Saudi fans wanted me to be. What I always told people was, listen, I understand if you're frustrated with me as a representative of your culture, um, because you don't feel that I'm authentic to it. But I will say this, if I can be in WWE as the first Saudi so that the second Saudi is better than me and the third Saudi and the fourth Saudi, then I will have done my job and I will be happy uh, because I want that next generation. All I want is for me to be a successful Saudi in WWE so that Saudis in Riyadh, Jeddah, wherever can go to their parents and say, I know I can do this because look at Mansoor. And they can say, okay, yeah, you're right. If Mansoor did it and he comes from here, then you can too. All that matters. Yeah, that's a great legacy to leave behind and I'm excited to see what comes next. Final question. What do you think is the meaning of life? What is the purpose of all of this? 42. <laughs> 42. Yeah, 42. Hitchhiker's Guide. <laughs> meaning of life is, um, I think it's just giving as much love as you possibly can into the world, to the people that you love. Um, and, and just, there's so much evil happening in the world right now and it breaks my heart. And um, it, it, I feel so small. Because uh, there's really very little I can do about it. And, you know, I, I, I look at my daughter and I wonder if she had been born a few countries over, if she would still be alive. And it's very difficult for me. And, and all I can really think about doing is whenever I am in the position to make someone's life better or make someone a little bit happier, uh, then I will do that every single opportunity I have. No, that's a beautiful meaning. The meaning of life is love. Love is always the answer. It sounds cliche, but no, it's just... It is. It's always true. I love that answer. Marshall, thank you so much. If people want to connect with you, find out what you're up to, find out about your next shows, where can they go? Yeah, they can go to uh, any of my socials, uh, Twitter, Instagram. Um, I'm Suave Mansoor. <laughs> it's a holdover from the male models thing. I can't change it because then I'll lose my verified badge. Whatever. I'm yeah. still the Sultan of Suave. Suave problems. That's fine. Uh, it's S-U-A-V-E-M-A-N-S-O-O-R. And I have a link tree to all kinds of things, merch and uh, Cameo. I can do personalized messages for you. I, I did a bunch for uh, the holidays, which is super cool. And uh, yeah, I got shows every weekend. So hopefully I'm coming to your town. Yeah, go check Mansur out. Mansur, thank you so much, Shokran. It was an honor talking to you. Awesome. Thank you so much.